Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone. I'm David Reed. Welcome back to Dial the Gate, episode 187, the Stargate Oral History Project. Thank you so much for tuning in. Edward Gross, who is a writer of uh, much uh, of the, the work that I have read, including the, uh, the 50-year mission of Star Trek, he is joining us for this episode because he has completed Chevron's Locked the unauthorized, unofficial oral history of Stargate SG-1. And he is joining us for this hour. But before we get into the thick of it, if you enjoy Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, please click that like button. It uh, helps make a difference with YouTube and will continue to help the show grow its audience and our reach. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click on the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days on both the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. As this is a live stream. We've got moderators in the YouTube chat who are going to take your questions for Ed. Who will be, uh, I'll be giving them to him at the, the second half of uh, the show. Uh, and until then, uh, he and I are going to catch up. Edward Gross, author, Chevron's Locked, the unauthorized, unofficial SG-1 oral history. How are you, sir? I am good, David. I'm really good. I'm, and thank you for having me here. It's, uh, thank you for it's being here. Experience doing a live uh, broadcast. Oh, we're gonna have fun. So, who is this Kryptonian behind you, and why is this Kryptonian behind you? One would call it an obsession. Uh, it is <laughs> Superman, uh, of course, and my comic rack. Uh, my family indulges me, my kids and my wife. Um, I'm. I've been a lifelong Superman fan, and. It felt right since in June I have my next book coming out called Voices from Krypton, which is an oral history of Superman. So uh, got to self-plug wherever I can. So there you go. Absolutely. Why, why Superman? What, uh, what do you relate to about him or what is it about him that, that makes him exceptional for you? I fly. So I identify. No. Uh, <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I think I discovered uh, the Adventures of Superman reruns uh, when I was like five years old in the 60s, in 65. And fell in love with the character. And then my father had one comic book he ever had. In fact, I have it here. It's called The Illustrated Story of Dogs. All right. So I fell in love with the comic book medium with that. And then I discovered that there were Superman comic books I did not know. So that started that obsession. And I started watching every version, reading every comic I can get my hands on that had the S in it. And as I <laughs> Of course, you know, I went from here, actor to actor playing the character and have loved it straight till today. You know, some are better than others. But the point is, what it really is for me is I've always tried, right, is a qualitative word here, to live a good life and to do the right thing and to pass that on to my children. And the thing about Superman as he's evolved, it's been about hope. It's been about like Mark Wade, the writer of Kingdom Come and Superman Birthright, mm -hmm. 
Mm. He put it to me best. He said, this is a guy who has the power to do anything in the world he wants. And he chooses to do what's right. Mm -hmm. I try to do what's right as best I can. I'm no Superman. So there's something about that, though, in the darkness, you want to cling to a little bit of hope. And that's what that character, as cliched as that sounds, that's what the character is for me. Wow. Well, I mean, I yeah, I think for me as as a very casual fan, he he it represents the uh the essence of uh uh taking action uh on what's right and point and calling out what is unjust. Absolutely. Um truth and justice, you know. Uh And a better tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It used to be the American way, you know. It's it's right. interesting yeah. watching the character the character evolve uh and uh I've I we could go an hour on this, but I mean I've I've been impressed with some live action adaptations, not so impressed with others, but I think at the end of the day it's one of those he's one of those American icons that are just going to continue to persist and uh it's every new generation is going to explore him a little uh differently based on frankly its own values and and standards so it's it's uh it's uh it's a wild uh absolutely wild property it is and it's been in production since 1940 in some form wow i mean seriously the radio show debuted in 1940 the starkey people out there are like shut up about superman no Uh, no no you're fine uh but the radio show debuted in 1940 there's been a version through every decade since and we're getting ready, you know, Henry Cavill's finished now, and now we're moving on to whoever it's going to be in Superman Legacy in 2025. It just keeps going. It's really wow. amazing. Yeah. Stargate has some similar um, oh, uh, yeah. threads that way in terms of its uh, longevity and in terms of its its capturing the imagination of people. But before we get into it, you know, I first discovered you through the 50-year mission. Uh, which is the the oral history of Star Trek that you did with Mark Altman, if I'm not yes. mistaken. And I have read that thing through three times, um, wow. and both both editions. And it's just one of those things that are uh, like if like I I refer to it as like the the quintessential um, thorough document of the Roddenberry and Berman eras and a little bit of the JJ of, of Star Trek. I can't, I can't imagine anything um, that is more uh, 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 properly um, concise in its documentation and exploration of that franchise through those eras. So I want again, I want again to thank you uh, for that, but it's a great, great read for any Star Trek fan. I cannot uh, it's two volumes. It's I cannot I cannot um, recommend it enough. How long did it take you to create those? I mean, the 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 thing about a lot of these oral histories was with Star Trek though, all the books have mostly new interviews, right? They're mostly original interviews conducted by us. But in the case of Star Trek, Mark Altman and I have been covering the franchise for forty years, so we have an archive already of interviews, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of sitting down and writing, it was probably about a year or so, maybe a year and a half. And it was supposed to be one book. And we went to the editor at St. Martin's Press and said, look, this needs to be two books. And he looked, he goes, I'll be the judge of that. And he looked mm-hmm. at the manuscript, he goes, yeah, it needs to be two books. So, because uh, if you cut anything out of it, it would have cut the heart out of it. Mm-hmm. But it really was a mission to sort of be the definitive book about Star Trek. And I hope 
that that's for that for that fifty year period. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that that's what this book is because we put our heart and soul into that. And I, I I can certainly tell that as a Star Trek fan because you know you can't talk about Star Trek without covering the merchandise, without covering the fandom, without covering the aborted eras between um, the animated series and the motion picture. And it covers all of that in such ridiculous detail. I think that the the most daunting thing for me, if I was told to do this, regardless of whether or not I had most of the material from years um, uh, recorded, is organizing it. I mean, you have to organize the content into a narrative. It is, oral histories are a jigsaw puzzle, basically. You know, it is taking disparate views of something, whatever the subject is, through literally hundreds of people's points of view and laying out those transcripts around you and and somehow taking a quote from this guy here, this woman here, and start molding it into the narrative that you're telling a linear, for the most part, story from like pre-Star Trek through the release of Star Trek Beyond, basically, over the course Mm. of these but, it, you know, there have been people who have criticized it and said things, and all the books get this criticism, that it's a bunch of random quotes thrown together, and nothing could be further from the truth, because it. Re- I'm so disorganized in my life, but I'm an idiot savant when it comes to oral histories. For some reason, I've discovered my calling, and I'm able to sort of, and Mark does the same thing, he's able to see how the proper pieces go together to tell that story. But it's, I love it. I mean, the process, I'd love doing it, but it is very challenging to get it right. I don't think it's a fair criticism because uh, so often in so many of the cases, you found uh, quotations that one leads into the other based on what the person is saying. And That's sometimes it's like, okay, we're done with this section. We're moving on. And then a narrator comes in and the narration you comes in and takes over. A little over. paragraph and then you jump as a bridge. Right. But the, the quotation, I don't think it's – that's for the, for the Star, Trek, Star Trek one at least, I don't think that's a fair criticism because the, the, the quotations tell the story. Now, whether or not you believe all the quotations are fact – that's well, a separate that's conversation because there's there's going to be um, differing points of view uh, based on when the interview was taken, you know, what someone remembers. And you and I have talked about that can get muddy, but you present the muddiness for what it is. This is their quote. Take it or leave it. The, the best example of that, I think, is is in the book we did on Buffy and Va- Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, which slay uh, slayers and vampires. There's a bit about David Boreanaz in which these two actors, a female and a male, played the oracles on that show. And we were talking about David Boreanaz, and the and the woman, the quote is literally the woman saying, he couldn't be nicer. It was so wonderful the way he took us under his wing and helped us through these this what is a short part. Uh and and it was amazing to us. Cut to the guy whose immediate next comment is David Boreanaz was a dick. He treated us like garbage. He treated us like so you got two people literally worked together mm-hmm. in the same scene with the same guy and came away with completely different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's true. That, and that's like a, a perspective, you know, approach. Also, you know, someone may remember the, the tree was, was, uh, had, had, had blue plants on it or, or blue flowers on it. And someone else remembered that it had red, you know, there's certain pieces of information that they, I, and I've done this with Dial the Gate. I've gone back and I've referenced it, and you know it's it's a part of the transcripts now. But they're 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 transposing one memory onto another, 
And if you're there to catch it, that's one thing. And if not, you just have to infer it with narrative and everything else. It's, it can be tricky. It can be. And then the copy editor is constantly contacting. It's happened on Star- Chevron's Locked as well. It's like, oh, this one contradicts what this one said. Correct. And I have to keep saying, it's an oral history. It's yeah. okay. They can contradict each other. Yeah. You, know? you yeah. just want to make sure that you have, you have the transcript correct. And then the rest <laughs> is left for history. You know, you have to make sure that you're copying them correctly as and their intent. But other than that, some of the details, they just get lost over time. So Absolutely. People forget. I mean, you know, I could have done an interview with somebody in 1987. I'm so old. Uh, <laughs> and they've gone back to them in 2015 and gotten a completely different answer yeah. than they had in 1987. So yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Ed, before we dive into um, Chevron's Locked, uh, and we talked a little bit about this with Superman. I'm sure this will dovetail. What is it about sci-fi that captivates you as a fan? Boy, I, I mean, I, I wish I could put that into concrete terms. I mean, I fell in love with Star Trek when it debuted in 66, but it wasn't because of the allegorical nature of the storytelling or anything like that. It was cool aliens. It was cool ships. Uh, it, it was, inter- you know, exciting, you know, action adventure. Lost in Space was around the same time, which I quickly dismissed, but for a while was into yep. at the time. A Planet of the Apes came along. It was all the, and then of course, Star Wars and Close Encounters, and, and we just go on through the decades, yep. right? And it's just a genre that to this day continues to just capture my imagination by the possibilities it offers. Some of them exciting, some of them stupid, frankly. Uh, you don't know what you're going to get. But I look at something like Planet of the Apes, and that could be the goofiest thing on the planet. My kids can't look at the early films and do anything but like be derisive about it. Yeah, they can't take it seriously. Yeah, they don't at all. I treasure those movies. Those were my Star Wars, mm-hmm. and I'm currently doing a book on Planet of the Apes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so fun, one hundred one of many. Absolutely. Uh, but but as an eight year old, when I saw Planet of the Apes, it just blew me away with the gorillas on horseback. And then the, even the Statue of Liberty at the end of that. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's gone on for all these decades. I never get tired of it. You know, the other night I saw Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. What'd you think? I haven't seen I it. I loved it. Okay. I think they did a great job uh, uh, of finishing this thing off. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I really don't have any complaints about it. But I go to these movies and, you know, the cliche is, oh, I feel like a kid on Christmas. But I do. I get so wrapped up. I remember watching, you know, I'll count this in sci-fi. I watched Avengers Endgame. And my whole time, my my youngest son and I, who's like 28, but mm-hmm. but I'm like, the whole time through the movie, we're like elbowing each other, like, check that out. That's so cool what mm-hmm. they're doing here. That joy never went away. And it, it's, you know, I'm ready for the next one, whatever it may be. So I, I just loved it. I went to um, uh, Arrival a few years ago. And I, I have a very similar uh, the, thing with annihilation which came out a little bit later uh, with with a friend of mine who uh didn't like it didn't get it and right. when i walked away i realized that we go to the cinema for two very different things he goes to have fun and mm-hmm. to turn his brain off right. i go to have fun and to turn my brain on and you know, it, it was, I think it was that, that realization for me because, um, he didn't care that there was a deeper meaning, you know, it's, it's my problem with all of these star Wars fans who have decided to do star Trek. Um, you can star Wars 
according to George Lucas, is a fairy tale. It's about good versus evil. It's not necessarily science fiction. You can tell science fiction with it, but science fiction has to say something. It can't just be the note of good versus evil because that's fantasy. Right. Um, And then TNG season three came out and it was like, that's what I'm talking about, you know? And um, what now? With Picard. Sorry. Yes. TNG TNG season eight, basically. You're absolutely right. right. Thank you for clarifying me. I appreciate that. Um, And we can, if if it's saying something about us, if Mm -hmm. it's stopping and making us think, that's something that 20 year old me can enjoy watching the motion picture. That ten-year-old me enjoyed watching the special effects and watching V'ger. Right. It it be it. I treat it differently as I age, and as David stop talking, let him talk. As as so much of the Star Trek gets rewatched by me as I get older, it becomes relevant now in some cases more than ever, depending on the episode. Absolutely. Now my kids really got into the Kelvin movies, the JJ movies, right? But my son Dennis and I, that's, he's my middle son, I've met, I think I've referenced all three now. Uh, <laughs> uh, when when we were watching an episode, he had just seen, like, I think it was Star Trek in the Darkness or something, right? And I was had Deep Space Nine on, and he watched the episode. And he looked at me, and he wasn't a little kid at this point, but he looked at me and goes, Star Trek's supposed to be about something, right? Yeah. And it's like, he got it. Watching DS9, he got that it was about something, which is not... And I love the, the most of the JJ movies, so I'm not putting them down at all because they're a good, fun adventure that capture the essence of Star Trek enough for me that I'm happy with it for the most mm-hmm. part. But they're just big adventures. And he the fact that he latched on to the fact that it's supposed to be more about ideas. At 10. And yeah, I mean, it's just wow. it's like amazing to me that he got it and you know most people don't and uh, you know understand it they're like oh give me wham bam you know action adventure and i do prefer like you the uh i prefer the allegories you know when captain kirk was tearing down disintegrating chambers because people were watching to their death as an analogy of vietnam yeah that to me is a heck of a lot more interesting than even on tng where the promos would be can Worf be a single father on star trek the next generation well that's kind of interesting but it's not quite the weight well, I mean, of yeah look at me mr spock i am black on the right side Lokai is oh, white yeah. on the right all of his people are was, white on the right side a little over the top but over the it, well i mean but still the yeah. fact that they couldn't uh the for for the federation people it was like you're the same species what what are you talking about and right. for that culture it was as important as anything you know and it was just it's just you're right. It's a little bit obvious, but you know, it's that's what sci-fi does, I think. And ninety-five percent of that with Star Trek, you can transfer right into Stargate in terms of what it does. Oh, it's absolutely. The same kind of content. That was yeah. That was uh, back in in uh, ninety-seven. That's what I thought. The movie was like a near miss. I thought it was good. It didn't blow me away. The original mo- theatrical movie. Uh, I thought like <laughs> I had the opinion that the, those guys, Emmerich and Devlin. Made movies that were almost great, just a little short of full of being great movies, you know. But the show captured my imagination pretty quickly on um, when it did. Although there were a couple episodes, just like, oh my god, you ripped off the worst episode of the Next Generation. Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> so they have to find their footing. Movie. They have yeah, to figure I, I, out what course. they are. So all shows have to do that. Yes, of course. 
Yeah. Tell me. Uh, so uh, g- give me a little bit more. So yeah, I, I agree with you about, about um, Stargate, the feature film. It's a fine film. Yeah. Um, and it plants the seeds that Brad and Jonathan and Robert watered and gave sunlight. Oh, there's no question. That is the beauty of it. You know, you look at some, they saw it too, I think in the beginning, when you look at the concept of the Stargate, and especially when you expand it beyond like two channels and, you know, you're going to the one place and the earth and the other place and that's it. And it's done. They saw the possibilities of the Stargate and, mm-hmm. and you know, the comparison kept even, I mean, I know everybody knows this now, but the comparison that I kept getting from them interviewing for this book was it's the enterprise. It's their version of the enterprise, getting them or the transporter, getting them instantly to where they have to be basically. Um, so yeah, it, it, it got to ex- First of all, it had that extraordinary life of 10 years and 214 episodes. Not SG-1. Yep. Right? SG-1. That's what I'm referring to, SG-1. Uh, to me, that's astounding for a sci-fi show, first of all, to have lasted 10 years. Blows my mind. And it was still at the top of its game when it ended. And I probably just went off on a weird tangent there. It but... didn't jump the shark. Now, now, some people left when Rick left. They weren't right. interested in a in a in a Stargate that didn't include Rick. And I remember watching this in the forums. Just a number of people just said, "It's been great, you know. Best of luck, you know. Truly, but we're done." Um, but it had to yeah. transform. It had to do like what Mash did. You well, know, Mash and Cheers are the two best examples of shows that would lose primary players and still pick up the pieces, so to speak. There weren't even pieces. And keep going because the writing staff was talented enough to breathe new life into the show because they had new actors rather than have somebody come in and just fill the role of that same actor who just left playing basically the same kind of character. You know, ben Browder coming in, I think, was a godsend to the show. Well, the because, se- yeah, go ahead. No, it just gave it, it just break, gave it this humongous uh, breath of fresh air. The Great. setting and the circumstances were in and of themselves strong enough that a player could put down the ball and someone else or toss the ball to another player and they could continue to move it down the field uh, and provide um, uh, a satisfying story. Now, people are going to have their favorite seasons. People are going to have their least favorite seasons. But it's still, I mean, you compare it to basically any other uh, modern work of of, uh, television and it's it's up there. So Absolutely. And what helps it, like I remember when the X Files started, I was I was I used to be a big fan of the Night Stalker. I'm still am, you know, the Cole Shack, the Night Stalker. The X Files was so influenced by the Night Stalker early on, you could tell, and it was so innovative in the beginning. And they would have these mythology episodes with the dealing with the UFO and the abduction of Mulder's sister and all this stuff. But the the mythology episodes were never that good because they wouldn't answer questions. Right. They would just pose questions and pose new questions on top of the old questions. Right. They never really do any resolution. Stargate had SG one had this incredible mythology. Mm-hmm. And in the process of writing a book like Chevron's Lock, where I really had to throw myself into it, not watching it week to week, but watching it in a much more uh binge manner, watching that mythology evolve was probably one of the most exciting things about the show. To go from cavemen to the, and I put quotes around that, to 
guiding starships through space mm-hmm. by the end of the show. That's incredible. I mean, that mm-hmm. is, and it, and it all was earned. You know what I mean? You could say they accelerated the pace for certain things, like getting the ships up and running. Who cares? I mean, that's, that's, that's <laughs> right. Okay. You have to get into space. What are we going to wait three seasons? It's, you it's television. Right. Exactly. Right, exactly. That being said, you never felt that they were cheating to get where they were going or that the mythology felt like BS. It all felt organic. Mm-hmm. That is so hard to pull off, especially for a show that goes that long without the writers running dry. So tell me about Chevron's Locked Itself. Now, is this the first book that you wrote without Mark Altman? No, I've written a lot of books over the years without Mark. In uh, terms of the – no, in terms of the – terms of the oral histories. The oral histories. Yeah. This was uh, – Chevron's Locked was the first one without Mark. Voices from Krypton was the second. Okay. And I'm writing basically. Well, I co-wrote Indiana. I went on Indiana Jones that after we finished. After I finished Superman, I'm onto that. But Chevron's locked. Yeah, that was the first one of the oral histories. Mark introduced me to the oral history format when he first mentioned it to me. I didn't even know what he was talking about. Uh, <laughs> then we looked at the one live from New York, the Saturday Night Live oral history. Uh, there's another one too, and I'm oh the MTV. I want my MTV, and that <laughs> of course. <what> it's <laughs> But they're brilliantly done. And that's the beauty of an oral history. If you do it right, and I'm not saying I have, <laughs> even if you're not a fan of that subject, it should suck you in and be an interesting story of how something was created, I hope. Absolutely. Uh, so how did so, you, what, what were your, um, what, what was your intent in creating this? And who were the first people you reached out to? Tell, tell me about the process. Well, the process was originally I was doing the book for Eagle Moss, uh, you know, which went right. under, of course. And uh, the first person, and so they set up the deal, and the idea was we were going to do th- uh, two books, one on SG-1 and then a combination book on Atlantis and uh, Universe. Um, then, the, you know, but then Eagle Moss went under, NASA was interested in, in the book, and it ended up there. But as far as the process is concerned, all things start with Brad Wright, as far as I'm concerned. If you get Brad on board, and and it, and I was able to do that right away, forgetting almost that during universe and before that, I forget in Cinescape magazine and 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 all over the Sci-Fi Now magazine, I had all these interviews with him and Robert. I totally forgot about. We were talking about universe, going every episode and all that stuff back then. But Brad and I, and he writes the forward to the book, and he kind of recounts this in the forward. It's I reached out to him. He said yes for an, one interview, basically. Mm-hmm. We kind of sparked off each other talking about different things, about writing, about, you know, our histories with our me as a journalist, him as a producer. And it just said, okay, let's do another one. And then that became a third one and a fourth one. And we just kept going. And, you know, Brad refers to me as a friend in the in the in the forward, and I certainly feel that way about him. Uh, you know, when Eagle Moss went under, he was the first person I contacted again and said, Listen, I'm just letting you know, these are the facts are you still okay with this? And he absolutely was. And then Brad started hooking me up with, he gave me uh, contacts for Jonathan Glasner, for Robert C. Cooper, uh, Peter DeLuise, everybody. I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody that I spoke to for the book, biggest problem with the book was the time, the tight schedule was very tight to turn this book around. And originally had a very strict word count. There was no episode guide. Now we have an episode guide to, you know, every episode. Thank you to you and Jaron both who helped me uh, with that tremendously. Um, so yeah, so it's just a process then of starting to do the interviews and everybody kind of took the attitude of, and I've had this so many times. I'm so grateful for it. I'm Battlestar. The, we did so say we all about Battlestar, the Star Trek books. 
you you find the people who are really passionate about the subject you're talking about will give you as much time as you need. You need four sessions? We'll do four sessions. You need, you know, whatever it is, they'll do it till I have what I want. And that's a very unexpected and a wonderful gift they give me by not making me feel like I have 40 minutes to to talk to them for a book on the subject. And and that's that that truly is so a gift uh, that they give me. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, so that was the start of the process. And then it was, you know, doing the interviews, transcribing the interviews and starting to piece things together. Uh, you know, I didn't want to originally, like I say, go down the episode guide uh, path because that had been done to some degree mm. before separate volumes while the show was was on. But then it, when it presented itself, I dove into it. And then it took forever for me to pull it together because I wanted to make sure that every episode had a quote from somebody, at least one quote from somebody. And it was like the other ones, just piecing it together to tell the story as best I could. Did you, um, did Brad help you determine the shape of how it was going to go in terms of the content? Or did you already have that pretty much locked? Pardon the pun. I had, I knew that I wanted to do an introductory section of what Stargate was, where it came from, and how it became a TV show. I wanted to do a thing on the cast. And rather than, do the cast from like, all right, we're introducing the cast and then we'll keep telling their history when they join the show and all that stuff. No, I wanted to give each cast member their section of the book and then interweave additional quotes from them throughout, basically. But I made a point of that. But as far as Brad, no, Brad actually had absolutely, nor did he, he try. I didn't ask, he didn't try. For me, it all forms as the interviews are happening. Mm. I'm not quite sure what it was. I knew I was going to do something on the mythology. Originally, I was planning on doing something on the effects, but that didn't work out. So that's not really in the book uh, that much. Um, so so the idea is, it's kind of how I do an interview. People sometimes will say to me, can you send me a list of questions? And I have to say to them, I don't write questions because I want it to be conversational. My philosophy is you do a con- have a conversation with somebody and carve the interview out of the conversation. That's the way I've always done it. And with Brad, it was like that too. We just kept talking about different things. Like, all right, today, let's talk about the mythology. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. And again, when I did that with everybody, I spoke to Brad probably more than anybody, although Peter DeLuise made himself extremely available to me, which was really great. Um, That's how it forms and that's how it comes together based on the actual conversations more than any kind of detailed outline or anything like that. Well, you also have the benefit of, of not doing it live. You know, it's it's not it's not going to be available to consumers immediately. So with your subjects, they have the ability to, as I did with you when I was doing some some of the quotes for this thing. Let me take a step back. Don't print that. Let me go at it again. Yeah. You know, um, but it's and, the joy of the perspective of today rather than when it's happening. Right. That's what's exciting about it is having for all these books. It's when you get them talking, looking back from today. Because it's just a perspective they can't possibly have when they're in the middle of it. Right. That's you know? Um, I mean, I did an interview with Terry... Terry. Uh, God. <laughs> Star Trek? From DS9. Terry, Terry Farrell. Farrell. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Sorry. Been at this for a long time. I'm tired. <laughs> you're uh, fine. <laughs> so Terry Farrell and I were on the phone for probably three hours, four hours. Oh, my in the middle gosh. For, for in the middle of it, I said to her, I go, Terry, I said, this is so embarrassing, but I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> And she goes, and her response to you is, oh, thank God I do too. I didn't want to stop the flow of the conversation. Oh, that's funny. So that's the beauty of having those long conversations. So you could be that candid with each other and uh, 
uh, you know, Jessica Hoffman, and now Terry Farrell, she ever sees this, is going to be like, first he can't remember my name, and then he talks about me having to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Gosh. What are you going to do? Uh, uh, and so you also got to know just Brad on a personal level as well. You know, yeah. I, I think you, you, got, you talked about how you shared your love of sci-fi with one another and, you know, of, uh, of space. And that's that I, would you say that your, your, uh, your friendship with him is one of the bigger takeaways from this journey? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact is now I may not speak to him that often, but I know if I wrote him tomorrow and said, Brad, can we jump on? I just want to talk to you about something. He'll jump on. He'll set it up and 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 we'll jump on it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we disagreed about certain things. Like, he doesn't like this guy. He just can't get his head behind him. Mm-hmm. He cannot rationalize it. Just like he told me he would die in a zombie apocalypse because he'd argue with the logic of them being around. Right, zombie, exactly. He would die. Yeah, it, it, uh, yeah, it uh, goes against the laws of thermodynamics. There you go. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it was the first time he ever said it, but it was very funny hearing that. That's uh, funny. Yeah, no. Um, I I've had a very similar journey with Cooper uh, on 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 this show. Uh, I I'd love to get Brad on, I, uh, but uh, uh, Rob Cooper has been uh, um, extraordinary going through the material with me for like three seasons, and he was someone whom I was never very comfortable with because Rob is very dry. Yes, and he is. <laughs> it's you know, and I couldn't read him. And this is, I met them when I was 18 years old, uh, going up to Vancouver and, you know, doing Gate World. Um, but in doing this show, I, f- I, uh, I count him as someone that I care about. And mm-hmm. uh, for any takeaway for Dial the Gates, you know, he's in the top three of things. Like if, if I go back, if I s- step back and I look at the work and I think in terms of the things that are important to me about what I've done, it's, it's my relationship with Robert Cooper that you know, that I will come away with being so thankful for being able to, to sit with him and, um, and share these stories with him, with the public, these extraordinary stories about this, this important period of, of these folks' lives. You oh, know? absolutely. It's just, he, I, yeah, I'm sorry. It's just a rich, it's a, it's a rich history. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And that's one thing I want to point out too, is I'm carrying on about Brad, 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 Brad. But the truth of the matter is, Jonathan made himself whatever I needed him, and Robert was great in making himself available. Even if I wrote him and said, "I need a quote for this episode, could you just tell me something about it?" and he would he would send it back. You know, he would just <laughs> he would do it, and they would do it for me because again, they were just supportive of this project of this happening. Well, that was that's a wonderful feeling when you have that, and you don't get the sense of, "Oh God, will this guy stop asking me minutia?" <laughs> exactly. No, well, that, but but the minutia is where it's at, you know. When when you first reached out to to us, uh, saying that you were going to do this, I knew exactly who you were, and it was it was for me, it was very important that you got it right. So you know, I wanted to make myself available to you as well. So. Yeah, no, and that's and I knew that honestly, and, and it's going to sound like ass kissing right now, but I knew that when I started this, once I got Brad on board, you and Darren Sumner were going to be the two guys that I really needed. From the fan point of view, and fans not even a fair word to sue it, is the chroniclers of the journey that Stargate has been on. Uh, I knew I needed both of you in, on my side, so to speak, and I got you. And both of you were great to me. I mean, you really 
very thankful to be a part of the process. Yeah, I, I am I am quoted nearly fifty times in this book. I went back and I'm like, my gosh, you know, I I don't feel I don't feel you know worthy uh, of that. You know, I just you know, I just wanted to make you know I, I was so thrilled that this product was coming out. It's not even really a product. It's, it's a product, but you know that this that yeah. this piece was coming out, and you know wanted to be a part of it any way that I could because it was it's it's going to be you know remembered as as one of one of the go-tos for this franchise that was certainly the hope but that's the thing it's like knowledge people who have knowledge to me even a passion or an awareness of a property they are just as important to me as the people who made the thing which is why i insist like on the planet of the apes book now we had interviewed everybody in the original films but i'm going back now to film historians to to different authors, uh, you know, about people who were involved with Planet X, biographers, because I wanted to flesh it out because I feel you have to give equal weight to the people who know of the subject or have chronicled it in some way or just have thoughts on it and interweave those with the filmmakers. And that was uh, the old Stargate I did not, except for you and, and, and Darren, I didn't do it that much because I didn't have the time, frankly, in the space. But I make a point of that, of making sure, and then what happens is, I think, when you bring those historians in, they carry, start ending up carrying the same kind of import as the people making it, because it's all interwoven into the tapestry of whatever that subject is. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I remember in the, in the book specifically, I, I make note of the story of the, of the fire alarm going off uh, during the pitch meeting with Brad. Was it John Symes? Anyway, um, and I, because he had told me that story and what what then happens is that you switch to brad and he tells the story right so it's a lot of that in the book of people mentioning like one thing and then you go to the source you go to the horse's mouth on it and say now let's hear from the person who actually experienced it so you're using us to kind of pitch for each other you know it's a very it's it's this a lot the story again getting that story out there in the multiple points of view Mm mm-hmm telling the story and what brad say he's looking up the guy's nose and he's doing a pitch in an elevator yeah and the guys so <laughs> yeah. keep going <laughs> yeah right exactly that's so funny oh, it was great. i'm telling you i love doing these i really really do this is my passion now i hope i never have to write a book non-oral history for the rest of my life. well it's 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 a pure form and it's this is one of my frustrations when because all of my interviews are very like transcribed based, you know, if you're going to read them, I don't like the idea of someone going off and it, it, t- cutting out dialogue to put in time for them to interpret the essence of what that person said. Give me the quote. Let me read the yeah. quote, you know? So wh- who among the cast uh, did you, did you enjoy uh, speaking with? Cast was a cast was a challenge. I have to tell you, okay. uh, ben, ben was great. I mean, Ben, to me, was the real standout because his passion for it, again, that passion thing was uh, uh, very important. Cast members were difficult, though. You know, uh, Richard Dean Anderson said he would talk to me. He told Brad he would talk to me a few times. He ultimately didn't. Uh, nothing personal, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so that's in the situation where you have to depend on either people who have done interviews with or convention appearances and sort of that's that kind of thing. And, in fact, I found some convention appearances with Rick that – he just told these amazing stories about being a teenager and bicycling and stuff like that, that are just incredible stories. And then you have other people then who I did interview commenting on those on top of that. So it just fletches it all out, you know, but I'd say of cast 
Ben is the st- standout for me though, because he was, I just love that story, which everybody knows, you know, of his first episode, right? Where he didn't want the camera on him. He wanted his looking at the Stargate and the camera moving to the Stargate. And when he told me that, I was like, wow, that is an actor without an ego. I mean, that is a guy who's just cares about the show. Mm. trying to, you know, convey that. So he had so also was- inhaled the franchise before he went and saw it. And they, yeah. they kind of incorporated that into his character. Like he was an SG one historian. Mitchell was, yeah. Uh, and so when he's on that set with that with that character with that gate, he knew what the show was about. Absolutely, you know, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, but the the majority of my interviews were behind the scenes people. That was the majority of original interviews that I conducted uh, with that. And really, they they do take up the lion's share of space in the book because they're the ones who are behind the scenes crafting it. You know what I mean? But. And they haven't given so many interviews over the years either. You know, if you go and look, you can find reams of interviews with Amanda and Michael. Um, right. But that, that's, again, you know, to, to go back to Dial the Gate for a moment, that's really what I've enjoyed as well. Because there are some of these stories that will just pop into their head as we're talking, you know, about X, Y, or Z. It's like, oh, I've got to tell you this. And and I'm sitting here who have, I've covered this most of my life. And it's like, I never knew that. Or that feeds into that thing that I knew about that. And it's just wild to, you know, that's just something just will just pop into their frond if I can use the show's mythology a little bit. Uh, And and we get we get a treat of something that we didn't expect to hear necessarily that they didn't even expect to to occur to them. That's always the joy, especially when you have uh, had that on Superman. Mark Wade did a conversation about um, one of the editors uh, of D.C. in the 60s who and he had a horrible reputation, the editor. And he came away with this psychological looking at this guy and offered up what his comics, he tried to put in his comic were part of the man's own psychosis, basically, and or psychological independence. And Mark said to me, he goes, I didn't even ever think about that before. And it just occurred to me now when we're talking about uh, one of the ed- the editor. And I thought that was very cool that it opened up even him, giving him thoughts that he didn't even know he had about Superman about the history of Superman. And that happens all the time. With these you, well, you're helping people put pieces together in a perspective that didn't occur to them because yeah. it's not necessarily the direction that they were coming at it. Right. You know, that's just how it is. Uh, and yeah. that's, that's, that's a rewarding process because um, to, to help an art to not even intentionally help an ar- artist approach a piece of material in a way that they, that um, didn't occur to them, you know, even years later is still, a wild experience, you know? So that's great. And that's part of the joy of this is, is, is getting those stories out there that people may not have heard. I mean, Trek, I, as you know, there were a lot of stories that came out in that book that, uh, Oh, that's uh, generations and generations of stories there though. Yeah. So yeah. with a lot of, a lot of conflicting, you know, reinterpretations over time. Roddenberry was the worst, you know, he, oh. he, he, he loved to, to, you know, adjust his mythology. So, Oh, constantly. And, yeah. And, views of him and all that change but obviously this is not a star trek show so i probably shouldn't go too into the right no absolutely yeah for sure were there any specific revelations in the book that that uh that surprised you as as a a stargate sg1 fan or was it just all a part of the process for you it's part of the process but it's also they got to understand when when stargate ended i kind of moved away from it and went Mm -hmm. on to other things and, and all that so I hadn't really given Stargate too much thought until this book came up again. And then suddenly it was like, uh, you know, I mean, this book came up and then suddenly it was like, all right, let me dive into this again. I think the thing that 
and as I kind of said it earlier anyway, the thing that really, for some reason, my favorite section of the book is about the evolving mythology of the show. I, you know, in talking to them and how these things came about and how some, one element would spin off into another element, which would spin off to another element and create what is ultimately the mythology of Stargate SG-1. That to me was fascinating mm. to hear from talking from different people who kept giving Robert the lion's share of credit for being the mythology guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all contributed, but Robert, they kept saying, was the guy who really honed in on the mythology of the show. And that, to me, was fascinating. And also the discussion of, and I'm not saying it's unique to Stargate, but it's evolution from episodic to more serialized in a lot of ways. I mean... As stories have evolved in their telling. Yeah, and and, and that's the thing. And there were elements that would be picked up. To me, it was like DS9 in that sense, in that, you know, you'd introduce these characters in episode two, and then in episode 16, they'd be back for some reason, and... SG one excelled at that of, mm-hmm. of planting the seeds with these different characters they never expected to go back to again, and then did again and again when when they really worked. Well, these these characters were each such unique tools in terms of their utilization for stories that right. when they went along and they had an issue, it's like this this tool on this lower shelf here will be perfect to pull this out you know and and that character would fit right in or would would launch the show, uh, the 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 franchise in a in a different at a, a different vector than it had been before absolutely and that feeds into even if the show wasn't serialized it felt serialized because mm-hmm. you were revisiting these storylines and these people and that adds a realism to the show that a lot of shows don't do because there's that's at that time they were so hell bent on resetting everything at the end mm-hmm. of the episode that you never got a chance to get that depth, you know, to explore these different things. Stargate SG one in my mind is one of those shows that first shows to do that. And that was that was a thrill talking to them about that evolution. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I was talking with Paul Mully a couple of weeks ago, uh, executive producer of SG1, and he we were having conversations about whether or not to continue the canon in a new in a new uh, iteration that Amazon and MGM are going to eventually do. And his answer is beside the point on that. But he kept on saying, "We did not set out to create a canon, aka a mythology. You know, we were doing episode by episode, season by season." The mythology came out of that as a result, but it's not like the reason that they did it, which is many reasons, the reasons that fans continue to watch. Well, that's what gives it life. I mean, seriously, that that organic feeling that that you're watching something that is changing and evolving. Believe it or not, the TV show Angel was like that of all Mm. things, right? They would allow those characters to do horrible things but then slowly redeem themselves or not. But it was, and that's always fascinating too, when characters can go off in sort of very interesting directions when people aren't afraid to do that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I thought SG-1 again did a lot of that. Yeah. I, I not for, in horrible directions, but you know what I mean? In that well, chance. you know, it's, it's, uh, it always goes me back to the, the Irvin Kirshner quote about, you know, putting Han in carbonite. It says, this is a continuing story. It doesn't have to be episode by episode. Some things can overlap and can, you can continue to enjoy each of them in a bubble as long as there's enough information for that bubble. Right. That, and you, you don't have to watch it that way. You can, you can enjoy them sequentially. So. Exactly. It's so cool. Yeah, so, it is. Um, 
Atlantis universe? What are uh, the all odds? Depends. I think it all depends on how this one sells. To be honest with you, it's I hate to be crass and commercial about it, but if Chevron's lock sells, so, I will jump on Atlantis and Universe to do you know either one book for two or a book on each. I'm not sure how that would fall out. Have you had any information on pre-orders? It's it's out of stock uh, out of stock on Nacelle Books. Well, that's good. I don't know yet the numbers. Okay. Uh, you know, I think when the book comes out, we'll get a better feel for how. Because you got to remember, every everybody may order them, but if the booksellers can return them, so that's you know that's where you got to wait and see what those final sales are. But if this, I can say that if Chevron's locked uh, sells, there will be follow ups, at least one follow up, if not two, on uh, Atlantis and uh, Universe. So the curious thing for me is that I bought the book; it mm-hmm. showed up at my house. I'm now in LA working on a project, so it's it's back home, nice and cozy in my garage. So I don't have it here. And then it said yes. that the oh. on Amazon that the the date's been moved, um, the release date's been moved to May the 16th. Do you have any idea what happened there? I don't. I think it had something to do with uh, distribution. Okay. I, I, I think that's really what it comes down to. You got to realize Nacelle is doing an, an amazing job. Publishing is something is relatively new for them. So they're learning a little bit too, as they're going on, okay. on, you know, on how to get the books out there, how to put the books together, how to get the books out there, that sort of thing. Okay. So I think that's part of it. It's part of the curve like anything else. But the fact is I have never seen a publisher so enthusiastic about what they're doing. Uh, that, yeah. But I think, it, I think it's a, a um, distribution issue. Okay, understood. Yeah, because it was, uh, I I know a lot of people who are really wanting to get uh, their hands on this thing, and um, I think it's going to do. Uh, I think it's going to do pretty darn well. I'm I'm very hopeful that um, that uh, people are going to uh, fall in love with it. Uh, Table of Chevrons. I'm just now noticing. That. I'm I'm searching inside the book oh. on Amazon. Table of Chevrons. Yeah. I'm like, hold on. What I is got that? I got a little cutesy. You know, you do. You wanted- <laughs> Well, you actually suggested, don't you want to come up with a title like 50 year mission that'll, uh, that'll really, you know, grab people. And I quote, wrote you back or called you back and said, Chevron's locked. That's it. That's exactly. Uh, okay. So we have to provide this with proper context. So all of your books have these amazing titles and it was this one at this point was like, I forget what it was, but it was like the complete Stargate. It was like, it, it was, was like boring. Yeah. It was what would come after a colon. And it was like, you've got to give this thing a name. You know, and so I'm I'm thrilled that you ran with that because I was I was like I, you know he's gonna be like David it's fine <laughs> no, like, no it's gotta have fine. some pizzazz oh please I'm never it's fine I'm always like to the last till they you know pull voices from Krypton they had to pull out of my hands to get moving in the production because I would have kept going if they let me so I'm never of like well that's good enough I'm out of here you right know no I mean? absolutely it's one of my biggest problems I can't let these things go. Uh, until I can't, you know, I have no choice. Art's never done. It's just, it's just set aside. Is that what they say? So, I don't know if that's what they say. Or left abandoned. Them. Yeah, there you go. And uh, yeah, it's like, I'm always working. I remember when I was writing the Galactica book, Thanksgiving weekend of whatever year that was. I was write, writing and writing and writing and writing. And like the Saturday happened, the Sunday happened. The book had to go out Monday, Monday at like 345 in the afternoon. We sent the draft to, uh, to the publisher, I was like, right to the last minute. There's no breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with Chevron's Lock. It was like, I finished finish the episode, guy. Wait, I got to finish it, you know. And and it was like that. It's this. It's just this. You want it to be. Look, somebody people are going to criticize no matter what you do. You're going to get criticism. Of course, I expect that. I guarantee you, Superman is 720 pages long, and somebody's going to say, Yeah, but he didn't cover this. He didn't cover that. <laughs> I know it's going to happen. I mean, and people are going to bitch that or complain that. 
I didn't cover this or that. And the truth is, you can't cover everything. You can't cover everything. You know, and this, I had a very tight schedule, but I tried my damnedest to make sure that it covered all the bases of the show. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, it told the story through the words of those people. Mm -hmm. And I hope that they're happy with it. And I hope the fans are happy reading about it. And I hope there's some new stories in there that maybe they don't know. I don't know if that's the case. But. As a contributor, I'm thrilled with it. And I, and I'm, you know, really hope that people get their, their hands on it as, as fast as they can, because you know, you, you poured out your heart and soul into this thing. And, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a product that will, uh, be on many a Stargate fans shelf so that they can reference, you know, as they move forward that, that episode guide, you know, is a stroke of genius because, you know, now you can, you can have it next to you while you watch and, yeah, and take away various quotes. quotes. Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was more quotes, but again, I had to stop. <laughs> That's the thing, that. you know, absolutely. And hopefully we'll have the same for Atlantis and universe. So. I mean, that is really the hope. So, uh. We'll see. But, you know, the funny thing about me is, you know, for 15 years, I was the editor of Life Story. Actually, yeah, 15 years of Life Story magazine, which was a magazine devoted mostly to teen subjects. Justin Bieber and Sink, Britney Spears, who cares? You know, that sort of thing. But every time an issue came in, I cradled that thing like a baby. I mean, I would look at it, turn it page by page and, and go through it. And that's how I'm with these books. You know, my heart is so into this stuff. All these years, I've been a journalist for over 40 years. Mm. And I love what I do. And so this is an honor for me to be able to do these books, the magazines, whatever it may be. This is perfect. It feeds into the uh, what I have to talk about here. I've got some fan questions. And uh, Gateworld asks, uh, what was it like being interviewed by someone else for a change? <laughs> that is a really good question because it's really weird for me. I'm very comfortable in the interview process. I think I do a decent interview. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I'm very comfortable doing it. when the when it's turned though, and something mm -hmm. I have to ask the question. I'm gonna, am I gonna be a moron? It's easy to ask questions. Is it, you know, how hard is it to, uh, easy is it to answer the questions when you have right. to go more stuff, right? That's that's a lot harder when you're thinking on your feet, saying, okay, I feel this way. You don't even know how you feel half the time until you start expressing it. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah, so I've done a few interviews, a few podcast interviews, a few print, you know, uh, online interviews, and now I'm doing this is my first video interview that I'm doing. And uh, it's 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 nice because again I enjoy the conversing, and that's what this feels like is a conversation. So yeah, so it's good. So there's really not a problem uh, switching gears. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's 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 turnabout is fair play. You know, every once in a while, it's nice to be pl placed. At, you know, this it's something it's something that you do yourself as an exercise uh, to get to get work done. And now you have to be the one to promote the content as well. So right. you know, I think it I think it says something about. Uh, you that uh, you're able to go off the cuff now and turn things around with me live on on YouTube. So it's 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 this is live. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's just look. I mean, it helps me too because honestly, speaking about this, speaking about voices from Krypton, I'm coming up with things like talking about my feelings about these subjects that mm -hmm. I never really thought about before. Mm -hmm. So it's fun. It's a good opportunity for me to really dig deeper into my own feelings about Stargate, about Superman, about what Star Trek, whatever it may be. And uh, someday when I write my memoir, just kidding, uh, I'll now have uh, this stuff. The book happens. about writing the books. That's sort of. I think yeah. there could be a title in there somewhere. It sure. could be. It could be. Yeah, we'll see. Jonas wants to know, will this book be available as an ebook in the EU? I think it's already, I think it's already available as an ebook. I mean, when you, yeah, it is. I certainly, I think it's available at Kindle right now. Yeah. You should so, be able yeah. to grab it. Uh, 
Yeah. In fact, sure. I would go for the ebook because it's got all the nice formatting and everything. The book, the, the textbook doesn't have some of the formatting that I put do you, in. Do you want to tell that story? <laughs> I guess you kind of just mean, did. It doesn't I mean, have the formatting just, that you wanted. It, that's really it in a nutshell. Okay. I mean, there was formatting, but they couldn't have been greater about making sure right. the ebook had all the formatting. So I have no complaints. There it's, you go. Uh, it looks great. I'm, the cover illustration is wonderful, I think. I mean, it's really cool. Did you pick that artist or did they come up with someone? I'm trying to remember. I came up with the artist in the sense of I think I saw him do a caricature somewhere. And it's like DC Stoltner, and he's going to hit me because I, don't, I probably didn't pronounce his name right. But I found his art online and I said, Oh, do you? And this is before I had the deal for Superman at Nacelle. And I just hired him to write, do a cover for me if I, in case I had to do it myself. Because uh, my agent was having a hard time selling the voices from Krypton and Nacelle jumped on it. Um, so I had a cover already done. And then I went to them and said, I really love this artist to do the one. For, why don't we make my oral histories? I'm doing like a dozen books for these guys. And it's like, why don't we make all the covers, these caricature images, and that'll be sort of our, our calling card for the books. So they agreed. The Chevron's Locked one is great. The next one in Indiana Jones is amazing. Uh, so it's like, it's exciting. It's fun also presenting a, an original piece of art uh, that we can get away with because it's not copyright because it's caricature. Of course. Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah. So 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 that's the, where the artist came from. I found him, and now we're using him for each one of these as far well, as there I you know. go. Yeah, I love the the one for Superman because it looks like like uh, comic cells. And yeah. I, I'm hoping that your Indiana Jones one will be like a movie poster. To some degree, it is. I mean, okay. I mean, it is. It, like I said, it's. I think it's really good. I think you'd be really happy with it. Okay, that's legit. Lockwatcher wants to know: Is there any particular episode that you consider your favorite of SG One? Wow, that that actually is very tough. Yeah, um, two hundred fourteen. Narrow that down, Ed. <laughs> really, especially when I had to sort of revisit them in this speed uh-huh. that I had to revisit them here. So I'm, I mean, I enjoy the fun ones, you know, the goofy ones, like, like 100 and 200, uh, you know, and, you know, yeah, honestly, I can't even tell you. I mean, okay. and people are going to say, well, he doesn't know the show. It's not that. It's just for B to pick one. A lot of the things that I like mostly are like a lot of the character moments, those quiet moments where, where you get those little revelations from them about each other and that sort of thing. Those are the moments that I treasure on this the show is because there's a lot of really good ones of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what most of us tune in for those characters, you know, Yeah, and how they play off of each other is what makes it gold. I mean, just watching Jack and Daniel just spar, oh. you know, you it can was mix such one of them up and it, and it works and, and it works different sparks in different ways. And that's the beauty of it. Absolutely. Jeremy Heiner. What did you think of the expanse? We're assuming that you've seen it. Be honest with you, I haven't seen much of the. Experience. I haven't seen not it either. I, I not because I'm not interested. It's because there are two million streaming shows, yep. and, and my problem is when I'm writing these books, and I like to have the TV on. I need something I've seen already, because right. if I don't, I'm constantly going. You can't get sucked going, into it. It just has to be. Or I'm doing this, and I go, "Shit, what are you just? Oh, yeah, shit, what are you fine. say?" And, and sorry, folks, uh, and I have to hit the rewind button and start doing that. So again, I'm not working because I'm watching this. But normally I could have like Avengers on or Superman on or, or Star Trek on or whatever and not care because I'm just listening to it as background noise. Yeah, so. I, The Expanse is uh, every, even Darren Gateworld says it's great. Um, it was one of those where it's like, I'll watch it when it's over and now it's over. And it's like now I have to find time to watch it because, you know, it's, I've heard it's one. You, you don't like for certain things you want to give it your full attention. 
You don't yes. want to just have it on while you're doing the dishes. I'm and, still waiting to watch Breaking Bad and, Ad, and Mad Men. I mean, I haven't been able to watch either one of them. And it's like, and those are years old now. And it's like, they're on my list. But Breaking Bad's brilliant. Mad Men, I finally started like a few weeks ago. I'm not crazy about it. Like, I love John Hamm. There's so much womanizing in it. It's just uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, I know. But they're poor. They're also pouring it on. So it's just uncomfortable to watch. Um, Mac Boland's conscience. Did you interview the different Star Trek captains? Do you have any stories that you can share about them? I mean, I can. I, yeah, I mean, I can. You may not want to go down this path because it'll take too long. Uh, but like every one of the, I didn't interview Avery Avery Brooks. He's a tough one to get. But I've I heard that. Captains. Yeah, he really is. I mean, I was on the set of, of Voyager, and then they took me to the set of DS Nine. And he saw he was walking down towards me and the publicist. And when he saw us, he turned around and went the other way. Yeah. So he definitely want to take a chance of talking to us. But like Shatner is, I've spoken to Shatner a number of times now. And I've told you some of the stories of mm-hmm. uh, own, uh, of interacting with him. And he's a guy who, if you get him on a good day, he's great. You get him on a bad day, you're getting one word answers. I mean, when Generations was happening, I uh, spoke to him on the phone. I have to do something rude. I have to take a sip. I'm sorry. Please take a sip. <laughs> You're perfectly fine. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt the flow. What you got there? Sparkling ice, pink grapefruit. Quite good. There you go. Yeah. So there, there you are. So when I interviewed him for generations, he just didn't want to do the phone interview I was on. And the conversation, I mean, the, this, this encapsulates it. I said to him, this is the first Star Trek movie on the bridge without Spock, without McCoy. I would imagine that was very odd. And his response, exactly his whole entire response was, it was odd. It got odder as time went on. And that was it. I mean, that's all he would give me for that conversation. And every answer was like that. But then I have other ones where, you know, he just talks in depth about it. I had a two-minute interview with him, literally, about the steampunk, steampunk engines of Oz or something. He played the voice the wizard. And he said to me, what did you think of the film? And I said, well, I thought the story was good. The characters were good. The, the animation was eh. And he says to me, how do you spell eh? And I said, E-H. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, so for you, what was the strongest part of this film? And he goes, I thought it was the animation. So there you got a guy who's playing with me. And he bur- I burst out and he burst out laughing. So you had that wonderful thing. Patrick Stewart, very fun to talk to. I met him at the Generations Junket. I was in the set of First Contact. They opened ah. his trailer door. He looked at me and he goes, I know you. And and he recognized me from the Generations. I said, the Generations Junket. He goes, that's it. And, and then I went in and talked to him. And he told a wonderful story about how his first day on the set of that, of Next Gen, where, you know, everyone's laughing between scenes and stuff. And he's basically having a fit about it. And yeah, as a Shakespearean said, actor, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And Jonathan Frakes said, and Patrick, we're just having fun. And this is how he tells me the story. He goes, and I looked at him and I said, we are not here to have fun. And then he looks at me in a soft voice. He goes, can you believe I was such a pompous ass? You know, so that was his thing. <laughs> and, and I have to say, and, this, and then I'll shut up after this, is, is, is Kate Mulgrew oh. uh, couldn't get her for the longest time. Oh, and Kate. unfortunately, there was conflict on set between her and Jerry Ryan. Of course. And, number of people were commenting on it 
So right before the end, I contacted her publicist and said, listen, I said, I just want you to know, I really would love to talk to her. I said, I've spoken to Jerry Ryan and, and you know, and I named the different people that I've spoken to. Suddenly I was told, yeah, she'll meet you for lunch in Manhattan. And that woman, whatever the tensions were on the set of Voyager, took full responsibility. I brought it up. It was awkward bringing it up. She said, go ahead, ask your question. So I did. She took such full responsibility for it, saying that she thought she was enough for the show. They didn't need to bring in this sex pop, basically, in the form of Jerry Ryan as Seven of Nine and all this stuff. Jerry did a great job. She just couldn't handle the fact that they needed to bring somebody else in. Well, doesn't that change the temperature of that section of the book? Of course it does, because suddenly Kate's the hero. Because, right? So I admired that so much in her that she did that. You know, and it wasn't bull. It was like she, this is her honest feeling about how it went. Yeah, down. she was the star of that show, and then, and then Jerry came in, and don't get me wrong. I mean, some of my favorite scenes, and and Kate acknowledges this, are between Kate and Jerry. Absolutely, um, but it, it well, changed the, the, the temperature, right? Exactly, and that's hard for an actor. So it is, you know, absolutely. And Scott yeah. Bakula is just everyone always says he's the nicest guy. Any conversation I've had with Scott, and I've had a several of them wonderful i mean the man is just you know what's the expression a mensch he's a mensch (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that's as far as it goes then once we get to the new stuff then it's like you know the environment change i wasn't covering it as much as of course yeah yeah that was absolutely a pivot so so superman's coming out um june this june the 6th uh then indiana jones well, Indiana Jones, we're not sure when that's okay. going to be. Uh, that could be towards the end of the year, actually. Okay. Uh, so we're not going to make it for the movie, but we'll have a very in-depth chapter on Dial of Destiny when it does come out. Okay. You know, so it's Voices from Krypton, uh, June 6th, and then Indiana Jones later in the year, I believe, towards the end of the year, and then we go on from there. Apes will be out in time for uh, the new movie. That's Kingdom right. Movie. Okay. Yeah. Very good. That's that's a good one. That's uh that's a rewrite, an expansion and rewrite of a book called Planet of the Apes Revisited. And that's uh, being turned into an oral history because Lord knows I can't do anything but oral histories now. Oh, uh, I mean, they're, they're such fun once you get into them. And Gateworld is saying here, The Expanse, best show of the past decade. So I think you and I have our, our television watching cut out for us. Yeah. So absolutely. Ed, um, I have been so pleased to get to know you. Over the past couple of years working on this, I am privileged to call you a friend, um, and you know I am thrilled that uh, this this product is now making its hands and uh, make its way into people's hands. And right. uh, I think they're going to have a few treats in store. So. I hope so. I really hope that everyone knows that this was really designed to give them the best you know look at the show possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, best of luck with sales. And uh, and hopefully we'll be uh, we'll be talking to you uh, not too far in the future for for Atlantis and Universe. That would be wonderful. I'd be very happy to do so. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, sir. You take care. All right. Be well. (laughs) Long and prosper. (laughs) Be well. See you later. Thank you. Edward Gross, author of Chevron's Locked, the unauthorized oral history, unofficial oral history of Stargate SG-1. Thank you all for uh, tuning in, and uh, uh, thanks so much to Ed for for making this episode possible. Ferdinand Thomas says, I just rediscovered Stargate due to your interviews. Thank you. You're great, engaging, and a gracious interview. Well, thank you very much for, for tuning in, Ferdinand. Fenton Reed Smith spelled the exact same way mine is. 
David needs to hunt down the on-the-ground production staff with a vengeance. VFX, SFX, decorations, hell, PAs, accounts. Okay. I have made those calls. Um, I'm still, you know, working my way through them. But behind the cameras, people like to stay behind cameras. And this show is a video show. So it's... (laughs) That's that's tricky. Um, I've I've managed to do a couple. Um, James Tishner, you know, plenty of the writers. Uh, but but I, I've lost track of the number of people who have said, um, you know what, your show is great. You know, the, all the best. But I, I'm just not interested. One of one of the producers basically told me that uh, he couldn't come on because uh, what, there, there's legal stuff, you know, and it's like, well. The, that's all I can do. So, you know, that's the nice thing about this. We can we can pick it up and we can drop it. Uh, and when people become available, that some people their 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 tunes change as they get older and everything else. So, we'll just see what happens. I think that's all that I've got for you here. My thanks to Jeremy and Tracy, uh, my moderating team, for making this show possible. Thanks to Linda Gate Gabber Fury, my producer, Frederick Marcoux at Concepts Web, who keeps Dialogate.com up and running. Wormhole Extremist is going to be on a pause until I get back to Middle America right now. I'm in LA working on a, a project. It's not Stargate related. Um, but keep it on dialthegate.com for all the uh, upcoming interviews and everything that's going on there because that's that's where you'll get the most uh, up-to-date information. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate. I appreciate you tuning in, and I'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com.